Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins, and welcome back to the Boxing One podcast, episode 22 here. We've been hitting this for a few months, and we got a really great guest tonight, Maxwell Baumbach of uh, Bombs Boards. He, he does a little bit of everything out there on the NBA draft landscape, but we've been trying to get him on the show for a long time, and he just released a really good piece on Usman Jang and a few international prospects, so wanted to have Maxwell on here to tell us a little bit about his research, some of the findings and going through film, and then just discuss a lot of international guys. So Maxwell, thrilled to have you here. The one question that everyone wants to know, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, man. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we've been a day one listener of the Boxing One podcast. Always love the work that you do on YouTube. So uh, it's a real, real honor to be here. Well, I appreciate you, uh, you saying that there. And, and if you are familiar with the pod, then you know what question is coming here. So we, we start off we start off every new guest here on the pod with a little bit of a philosophical question. It gets to get our mind thinking a little bit more about hoops. You're up three with five mm-hmm. seconds to go in the game, and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? What is it that you instruct your team to do? Yeah, so it's, it's funny. Um, so my dad's birthday is tomorrow, the day that this is going to come out. And he uh, coached for about two decades, um, mostly women's high school ball. And I I talked to him about it. I ran it by him and I said, here's my answer based on what you've instilled in me. Um, So my answer is I do foul. Um, I am a sucker for positional rebounding. I'm like just up and down the lineup. If guys that rebound above their weight, I'm a huge fan of it. It just shows me that you care, that you're engaged in the game. Uh, so I, I would believe, I hope that, uh, my team has really strong rebounding principles instilled that if they miss that free throw, we are getting the ball. If we get fouled, we're making those free throws. And the big thing that my dad always, from the time I was a little kid instilled in me is that inbounding is a skill Yes, and it is so important to be able to inbound the ball. And I was probably the only kid ever at a park with their dad just practicing inbounding the ball and have, you know, having, you know, my sisters, you know, flare open and him just guarding me while I'm trying to inbound a ball. So I, uh, that I, I would do it. Um, I'm okay fouling and I'm okay with whatever comes from it, whether I'm forced to shoot free throws, need to grab a rebound, need to get it inbounds. Yep. No, I, I think that's fair. And, and I'm just going to push back and play devil's advocate. Cause I, lo- I love your answer. Okay. But I, I also think that it can go both ways a little bit. Right. So yeah. if, if you teach the fundamentals of, rebounding and making free mm-hmm. throws and inbounding correctly don't we as coaches also teach the fundamentals of guarding without fouling yeah. and being able to contest shots and and you know sometimes there's a little bit more simplicity in just trusting mm-hmm. your defense and those skills that you work on as opposed to just the situational ones for late game inbounds and, and that's and that's definitely fair i think i like the mental aspect of putting the other team on the free throw line Sure. I, I kind of like putting that pressure on them as opposed to just taking the chance that they might have a good out of bounds play that just breaks right on that, on that given possession. Um, or that they, you know, can get into some sort of a rhythm and get a nice open look. I'd rather just force them to sit on the line and think about it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And again, I agree with you. I'm a, I'm a foul up three guy myself. So mm-hmm. uh, we hope that not too many teams in our league are listening to a lot of us. <laughs> they, uh, they know our strategy coming into games next year, but mm-hmm. at the very least, I think that there's a really fascinating conversation there, but for sure. All right, Maxwell Usman mm-hmm. Jang. I I've heard a lot about him. We had chip Jones on our <laughs> podcast last week and he brought up Jang as being somebody who was a potential lottery pick and maybe even top 10 on his final board as it's going to progress in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we loved Jang 
as a preseason prospect. And we're really turned off by kind of what we saw for the first month or so of the season. I haven't dove back into the clips and watched full games of the New Zealand breakers in a while, Mm -hmm. but everything I hear is that he's starting to figure it out. And this is a really unique skill set player who, if he does figure it out, has tantalizing upside. I don't want to take more of the floor from you because you're the expert on Jang. You wrote on him. You put together an awesome piece. Why don't you unpack it for us, both in terms of what you wrote about and who Jang is as a prospect? Yeah. Um, so with Jang, I, I watched most of his games over the last month, but I did not get a chance to see his game that took place. I believe it was either this morning or last night. Time zones are tricky, folks. I don't, I don't know exactly when the game took place in Australia. Um, but yeah, to your point, he is really starting to put it together, especially in conjunction with where he started off the season. Um, and Chip mentioned it. He had a preseason game where he was spectacular and then the regular season started and he just did not look good. Uh, and again, I don't want to rehash everything Chip said, but the new New Zealand breakers, uh, have had a very tumultuous season. They've had COVID outbreaks. They've had, uh, injuries. They had one of their, you only get a couple import players in that league. One of them really did not pan out. Uh, and they ended up replacing him. It's been tough. And, I think people know that the New Zealand breakers are a bad team. What I don't think people know uh, is that the New Zealand breakers who Jen plays for are on pace to be the worst team in NBL history. Mm. Um, it's not a league where there's an incentive to tank. Um, I believe they're at like five and 27, I think like nine and 23 or something like that is like the worst record ever, but they're on, on pace to be the worst team in the history of the league. So from a situational standpoint, it's, it's exceptionally difficult. Um, he's being given an oversized role and he's starting to grow into it early in the season. There was a lot of growing pains. I would say, and again, I have not seen the most recent game. I saw you had some nice defensive numbers. I would say he's putting it together on the offensive end. I still have some very serious concerns about his defense and who he guards. Um, but just in terms of his ability to put it on the floor, uh, his shot, his quick decision-making, it is all looking far, far ahead of where it was at the start of the year. Yeah. And what is it that you necessarily attribute that to? Is that just him getting comfortable with his role and repetition in the same areas where he starts to figure it out? Have they used him in a different way? Is his shot just falling a little bit more? Like, is there one specific area or is it everything growing and getting better? Yeah, I, I do think it's, I think there's like just bits and pieces of all those. Um, I don't feel like his role is too much different, uh, but to be honest, after those first couple of games, I sort of tuned out on him. I thought he was going to be uh, pretty far out of the conversation by this point in the year, just based on what we saw out of the gates. Um, but it, it, I think a lot of it is just poise and comfort with the speed of the game. Uh, when he's on the court, he moves the ball very quickly, which is something I am a big fan of for NBA scalability. Uh, when the ball's in your hands in the NBA, usually you don't get to keep it too long unless you're a big deal. Uh, So he's just really sort of understanding that Um, he's more confident and assertive with putting it on the floor. Uh, He's not afraid to uh, go a little deeper into his bag, use his offensive footwork a little bit more. And his footwork is very clean on offense. Uh, Love it on that side of the ball. It's a great skill for him, Um, but also just sort of feeling out the game off the ball. Uh, there's a lot more plays now where he is just finding an opening and cutting to the basket for a real easy one. 
Uh, for people who aren't watching the international game as much a lot, if you think about like a Kendall Brown at Baylor, uh, the way that he'll just in the half court see, hey, there's an opening right here, and he just goes to it, that's that's something that Jang has really kind of put into his game as of late. Yeah, the ability to see the back of your defender's head and just cut towards the basket, find those those little openings, really valuable, especially for guys who are going to play off ball. And, and that's where you know his role with the breakers has been a little bit more in that regard. He's starting to get more, more reps from what I can tell. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, they have a couple of point guards that are even going to be familiar to Americans and, and fans over here. Peyton Siva yeah, for Louisville. Uh, they had Chasson Randall, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a guy who had a cup of coffee in the NBA. Like these are, are solid guards. And of course, a guy we'll talk about later today, Hugo Basson. Mm -hmm. There are only so many reps that you can get with the ball in your hands when you're surrounded by other really good and ball handlers and, and guys who need the rock. So I think that picking up on the cutting ability is really, really important for a guy like Jang, not just that that's going to be a role of his in the NBA, but it's a great skill to have no matter who you are, because it shows that you can play without the ball in your hands. For sure. And I think it just shows a nice, just baseline understanding of the game and knowing I, here's my opportunity. I'm just going to go get an easy one. And those little plays really add up and it's, it's tough because it, it, you know, it's one of those kind of basketballs like jazz things where it's uh, you know, it, it's not always going to be drawn up for a player to cut you the basket on a given play, but if it's there, you should take it. And, and it takes guts and it takes courage, especially for a kid who's 18 years old uh, playing in a professional read to not a uh, professional league to not only see that, but capitalize on it. And yeah, for sure. He deserves a ton of credit for it because it just from where he started at the beginning of the year, he, he feels like a completely different guy. You know, I, I don't know if this is an appropriate comparison, but there are a lot of really high ceiling players, especially on the offensive end, who go and play in these professional leagues and struggle right out of the gate. And it shouldn't be something that really brings down their long-term ceiling. I've remained steadfast a Jaden Hardy fan mm -hmm. throughout the entire G League Ignite season, even though he had some struggles initially. Jalen Green in the NBA, kind of a similar rookie season, right? Mm -hmm. Very inefficient, didn't seem to know his place at the earlier parts of the year. He's dropping 30 every night right now, and he's still a rookie. So yeah. a lot of these guys who are used to being – alphas are just unique offensive pieces they can go through some learning curves when they get into a league and i think jang is not just going through that because he's skinny and more offensive minded than than anything else but he's not getting a ton of on ball reps he's playing in a kind of shared system where he's having to figure out not just how do i get to my spots against pros and handle the physicality of one-on-one -on -one defense but how do i learn to play off ball a little bit more and more effectively and I think that uh, that we as as scouts are a lot of times just, you know, onlookers don't really have a good enough level of patience for letting guys work through that issue. And, and I think that Jang is is testing my patience in those ways and a lot of a lot of, a lot of really good <laughs> yeah. ways because I was very ready to jump off the bandwagon from the first couple games that I saw of the season, and I'm glad that. I'm kind of reminding myself to stay patient with guys of his frame of his skill set, because a lot of times it, it takes more time for them just to really figure out how to play. And I think to your point too, about being just in a professional league, I think in the NBL in particular, it's tough because it is sort of an older league. If you just look at who the top producers in the league are, it does skew older. Um, 
And, you know, I think sometimes people can overrate like, oh, well, you know, veteran experience and this and that, but it does make a big difference. And if you look at the NBA and, and the teams that win championships, they skew older and there's just so much that you can learn and pick up on and just ways that you can find to take advantage of players on both sides of the court, the longer that you play the game and the more you get comfortable with it. Uh, so for somebody like Jang, who played on an academy team with a bunch of other kids when he was in France to now suddenly be thrown in an environment where he's on a team with other professionals that, you know, might get frustrated with him, depending on decisions that he's making, whether or not his shot is going in, it's a new culture, it's a new language. Uh, they don't get to play any home games. Uh, just this multitude of, of difficult circumstances that have been thrown on him. It's a lot to deal with. Uh, and then you just factor in that this is a league of guys who've been playing this game for a long time. It's, it's not going to be easy. And, and it's physical as all hell too. Like yeah. A really physical league in the paint. And when you're what, six ten, and you weigh seven pounds, like Jenga kind of looks like he does. That's going to yeah. win. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's why like the defense is still a big concern for me It's because on offense, it seems like he's figured out ways to create separation and get himself better looks using his feet. Um, but the physicality on defense is just really causing him problems. And it, it, it goes both ways. It, it, it's hurting him in that um, guys are pushing him around guys. Guards will get through his chest. Um, bigger players will just take rebounds right out of his hands, go back up and get a foul off of him because he isn't able to stay vertical. Can't really contain him. It's the only thing he can do. Um, and then on the other side of it, he's really hesitant to engage. And there are so many plays where he, you know, he's there to help and he can just get right into position, get a block, get into a passing lane, um, you know, just quick swipe the ball off on the perimeter. And he's really afraid to do it. It just seems like he does not want to get his hands dirty. He doesn't want to bump bodies and he doesn't really want to lay himself on the line. And that, that to me is sort of the bigger concern with him still is largely on the defensive side of the ball. And even in the NBA with a tighter whistle, just by the time you factor in more space and how much bigger the NBA is than the NBL, I just have some real concerns about who he guards. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's obviously we're going to ask you about areas that he still needs to improve. I think that you've identified two different factors there, right? One is adding strength. Mm-hmm. in a way that can legitimately help his defensive game and being able to handle contact a little bit more, not get bumped off when somebody lowers their shoulder into his chest. The other part of it is the mental side, right? Do you want to guard? Do you want that physicality? Are you willing to get your hands dirty and make some of those rotational plays, even if it means picking up a foul and playing really physically? Um, that's always going to be more concerning, right? You can add the strength. You can work on some of the physical changes, but if the mental makeup isn't necessarily there to compete at an incredibly high level, uh, that that's, that's a red flag for me. Yeah. And especially cause I don't know, I, I think a lot of, a lot of the people who are bullish on Jang are really sort of hanging their hat on the defense is going to be fine because he's long. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, like to an extent it helps to be longer on an NBA court there. There's no denying that. Um, but even during this, you know, sort of improved stretch, he's still averaging under a steal a game and 0.2 blocks. And he's just in so many positions during a game where it's like, go help, go get that block. And like, 
I can see it on film. It's not, you know, something you need. Uh, like someone like EJ Liddell, who's just cat quick and sees things before they develop, gets into place, blocks the shot. It's not that. It's things where you can just see it playing out and he just needs to get there. And he doesn't. Uh, they, can, they can be really frustrating. And he has so much length and he's not, you know, the fleetest of foot, but he's not slow footed either. Uh, and you just like to see him, you know, get into handles more, get into passing lanes a little bit more. And it just doesn't happen. And it's frustrating because he's not inattentive either. Like you'll see him watching the guy with the ball, kind of keeping his man in check. He's not falling asleep. He's just not going for it. Well, it's funny because I'm sitting here thinking about who does he guard, right? And if you mm-hmm. play in a non-switching scheme, where you have one position, one type of player, and that's who you guard on our roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I agree with you. I don't really know where to where to put him. I think faster guys are going to give him trouble because he's not really quick twitch laterally with his footwork, and bigger guys are just going to bully him, at least early in his career, to the mm-hmm. point where if he doesn't want contact, that's going to be real trouble for him. Uh, but then I think about switching schemes, right? And if you're going to be really good in a, a switching scheme, you have to – use your length effectively, which I'm not, I haven't watched enough film to honestly say how he does in that regard, but you also have to be really in tuned off ball, knowing when to switch, knowing how to swim around post mismatches as guys try to take you in that area, cover up some mistakes that come from slitch, excuse me, slips or quick switching actions. And if he's not willing to be an impactful help defender, I think that challenges his existence in a switching scheme more than anything else. So I I agree with you. Like, I don't really know where to put him on that end of the floor. And it's not just about position, right? It's about what scheme can you deploy him in, in a way that best hides some of his, uh, his difficulties and challenges, or that best brings out the strength of his length. Yeah. And and the, and the thing that's still kind of, eating at me with with kind of criticizing his defensive game is that I look at how much confidence he's developed on the offensive side of the ball and it couldn't simply just be a matter of he's going to get into an NBA training program he's going to put on the size and he's going to think all right I'm fine and then he's just going to start making those plays like we can't we can't take that off the table uh and we also know based on his offense that he is a pretty high field player so part of me is, is hesitant, you know, knowing, I think he, I do think the defense is a big problem right now. Um, but to me, the big question is going to be, is that determination going to come along as soon as he puts on the size? And I'm, I'm a really big believer in guys will put on the size. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty rare for a guy to like stay skinny. I mean, you have your, your Brandon Ingrams and so forth, but it's pretty rare that a guy just like washes out because they were too thin. Well, even Ingram, like he's stronger and more filled out mm-hmm. than he was when he was younger. He's still not the bulkiest dude in the world, but he he's put on some functional weight. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't worry about that as much as I just worry about the sort of tenacity and aggressiveness. Yeah. Um, to your point, I, I think long-term a switching seam would probably be best just because I think it, it sort of suits his, his feel um, and I do think it sort of hides the discrepancies as far as like, if he could get bullied, how are his feet in space? A lot of that does sort of get taken off the table to a degree. Um, but I do worry about him just getting picked on early in his career. And you just have to hope that he can build himself up physically to a point that that's not really an issue anymore. That's fair. So, all right, 
we can debate the defensive stuff and still come mm-hmm. away with no answers. Yeah. Or we'd be here forever. But on the offensive side, what do you see his optimal role and usage being in the NBA? I mean, there's a wide range of outcomes. Um, I think, I think most of them on the offensive side are pretty good. I think he's going to end up being a good offensive player. Like even if he does not make it in the NBA, wherever he ends up playing, he will be a good offensive player there. Um, he's, he's a good shooter. Uh, he can knock down shots off the catch quickly. Um, I don't know that he's going to be like a primary guy unless he really hits his ceiling. Um, but even then he's just not super bursty. It's more of a footwork thing, which can work. There's a lot of, you know, high-end stars in the NBA now that aren't insanely athletic. They just have unbelievably polished footwork. They know how to read their defenders feet and and body and mechanics and, and react to it. Um, I do think there is, I, it's a kind of a cliche one, but people bring up Paul George a lot. I do think there's sort of a Paul George outcome in there. Um, his passing and vision is really good. It's not there all the time. Um, it's, it's tough because his assist numbers are messy given the league that he plays in on, on such a bad team. Uh, but he still turns it over a little bit. Like I don't, I, I can't, I, I have a hard time imagining him being a guy who ever just like eight assists a game. Um, but I do think he could be, you know, in an ideal world, a guy who initiates a little bit, mm-hmm. um, as far as like player comparisons, it, it gets kind of tricky just cause there aren't a ton of guys that are built like him. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe like, a like hyper Joe Ingles in a way where it's like a guy that, uh, you know, sort of an unconventional position type to be initiating offense and running offense through as a ball handler that can operate in some pick and roll, uh, but is also a threat to catch and shoot. I think something along those lines uh, is is sort of in the works. And I think that skill sets like that that are difficult to replicate are inherently valuable just because there aren't many guys that do those things. Yeah, it's a great way of, of framing it there. And, and, you know, my hope for Jang is that he is a functional, really good basketball player and not just a guy who looks great in a one-on-one workout because there's a lot of that appeal to him. And I think that's where the buzz mm-hmm. came from, right? Like Mike Schmidt saw him work out with NBA pros this summer. And mm-hmm. a lot of guys liked the way that in those academies, when you get to see workouts or some of the skill development stuff they do, he pops, man. He stands out. He's big. He's 6'10". He handles it pretty well. He's very, very smooth in pretty much everything he does. But is he a functionally really good basketball player that you can count on to do X, Y, or Z at a high level night in and night out for 82 games a year? And time will tell and bear a lot of that out. Um, there's real upside. There's real, real, real upside here. And, and I think you hit on that appropriately in your piece. But there's also, like you said, that wide range of outcomes. And he has to be a little bit better about getting the spots and being consistently functional in order for that to come out. And and that's the thing that I I don't think we like to talk about very much is the draft community because it's it's really fun to prognosticate like if this is it's so much fun to just like oh yeah this guy could become this and this guy could become that like i i love doing it it's it's why i write um but it's also really easy for us to not have to take responsibility for it and i'm not saying like hey if you were wrong about this guy you need to apologize on twitter.com every single day like i i've had so many guys that i missed on i think i had the first time i ever did a board i think i put malachi flynn ninth and I still think he can be like a nice player, but at the time I was like, oh, this guy's going to be awesome. And I was, I was wrong. Um, but the consequences for that were nothing. Right. I, I didn't have to deal with any consequences of that. So I think it's really easy for us to kind of armchair it and be like, 
oh, this team should just take a swing on Usman Jang or this team should do it or this like a team like the Heat should do it because they have a great developmental staff or a team like the Thunder should do it because they're rebuilding. It's it's really easy when we don't have our livelihoods at stake to just be like, oh yeah, I'm going to put him fifth on my board because he might work out really well. When, you know, if you work for a team and you do that and it doesn't pan out, it's it's a lot more difficult and and it's easy to to kind of, you know, celebrate when we get it right. Yeah, see, um, I, I kind of do the opposite with, with how my board works. Like I don't mm-hmm. tend to shoot guys really far up my board that are lower on a lot of consensus areas, mm-hmm. but I tend to really drop guys that I know aren't my brand, right? Yeah. Like that's a guy that, you know, Patrick Williams a few years ago was mocked in the top five, ended up going fourth overall to Chicago mm-hmm. Bulls. I had him in the 30s, I think maybe even the 40s. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. yeah. And, and it isn't necessarily that I didn't see the upside or potential in a guy like Williams, but to me, there were other risks or things that I didn't care for about his game that would say, hey, I'm going to let somebody else take the risk on that guy. Yes. And that, if, that, if my livelihood is on the line, I'm not going to be the one to roll the dice and say, yeah, I'm putting my eggs in his basket. And I'm okay doing mm-hmm. that with my board, uh, but it's very different than saying, Hey, this guy who everyone thinks is a maybe a 20th to 25th overall pick, I'm putting him second on my board and I'm attaching my my bandwagon to that. And if mm-hmm. he takes off, I'm trying to convey that into me getting a job in the future. <laughs> a bit of a scout I am. Like mm-hmm. that's I think that that's it's too easy to be that bold in our position. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think to your point, the thing that kind of has me a little freaked out with Jang more than anything is that the guys I missed on last year were the high field guys with size. If you go back and look at my board, it's, it's the Jeremiah Robinson Earls. It's the Delano Bantons. It's the Trendon Watfords. Um, and I liked Watford probably more than like a lot of people did, but JRE was the guy that like every smart person that I respect was like, he's going to pan out. And I was like, I, I just don't, I just don't see it with this guy. And, and it was, it was silly. I missed on him. Um, but Banton in particular is the one that kind of freaks me out, who is a guy that, you know, played some real rotation minutes for the Raptors early on in the season and isn't super crucial to what they do, but plays on an NBA court and looks the part of an NBA player. Um, but in college at Nebraska was six foot nine was not very productive and just shocked me when he started to pop up on, on draft radars because I always thought he was an interesting player, but I didn't necessarily think he was good. Uh, And the fact that he's just stepped onto an NBA court when he had a lot of the same concerns I had about Jim, where, you know, I'm not really sure who he guards, you know, the outside shot isn't there all the time. His shooting splits aren't efficient. And he looked, he looked good. He looked totally fine on an NBA court. And that's the one that's kind of haunting me with Jang, where it's like, I don't want to go too low because at the same time, guys that fit this archetype do tend to not embarrass themselves when they're on an NBA court. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really fair. And uh, there's certainly a plateau in this draft class that you reach where taking a swing on somebody like that becomes more palatable and attainable. And I think that it's still in the middle parts of the first round. Um, just with how this class is shaping up. But before we jump to any conclusions like that, there's obviously two and a half, three months between now and the draft. Mm -hmm. So a lot of separation to go with a lot of these guys, even some who are testing the waters that are going to end up withdrawing. But our theme here tonight, Maxwell, is on international guys. 
And I don't know if Jang stands out as the top international guy on your board. I don't even know if he stands out on mine. But what we wanted to talk about here are four other names who are making waves and either a potential first round and even lottery guys or just some intriguing, really good international prospects who we need to shine the spotlight on for a little bit and make sure that they receive their due. So by all measures, what I can sense is that Nikola Jovic for Mega is kind of the consensus top international name right now. And I say consensus, meaning the most places that you look, he'll end up being the first international guy off the board. And that doesn't count Dyson Daniels because he played with the G League Ignite this year. Um, but you know, Jovic is averaging 11 and a half points, four and a half rebounds and about three and a half assists per game. He's seen as this big six, nine, maybe six, 10 scoring facilitating big wing, you know, either a three or a four. Um, we have, we will talk about some of the question marks around his game, which have been irking me for months now. Um, <laughs> what's your take on Jovic? Where, where are you at with him right now? Yeah, he's he's one of the guys that kind of fluctuate on most day to day. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what his draft stock ends up being, because I can see a lot of teams talking themselves into him, because like I said, it's not a skill set that's very easy to replicate. Six foot ten can put it on the floor, can run some pick and roll and pass and can I I like the shot, his shooting percentage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. His his three point percentage here is like thirty three. But for a guy who's eighteen years old and is six foot ten not many guys shoot that well and he has got a quick trigger it is a very fast release uh so i i just really think it's it's going to be translatable and it's going to pan out conversely um there's a lot of the same questions you have about jeng he's he's not physical he's uh you know not the best at playing defense uh doesn't really do much of anything on that side of the ball he fouls he fouls a lot yeah, he does foul a lot. That's his his go-to defensive tactic uh, to stop people from getting into the paint. Um, but just still frustrating on that side of the floor that at the same time, I could see teams, uh, you know, picking in that potential range, like the Timberwolves and so forth, being like, this guy's just not going to fit. Like, we just can't afford to have a bad defender at the wing spot on the court because so many teams just have guys at those positions that can really fill it up. It's tough to have a guy who's a defensive liability play a major role for you in the NBA. And I really think his stock could just swing so heavily one way or the other. It's, it's the major push pull of things. And, and, you know, I'm guilty of it. I don't want to say highlight watching a little bit, but um, I, my initial evaluations of Jovich didn't put enough stock into how he would play on the defensive end. And I saw this yeah. incredibly tantalizing offensive potential, a rebound and run six ten really fluid handler hits shots, both in in spot up situations and off the bounce, tremendously fun passer. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, at six ten, and the way this guy moves and his length and and just the scoring ability on the floor, he is a potentially transcendent offensive player that I would love to have on, on my team. And then the season started and I got to watch a couple of full games because you know, European basketball starts a little bit earlier than college and even mm-hmm. a little bit before the NBA. For the NBA, for the Adriatic League this year. So, yeah. right. So you're able to watch, you know, five or six games as your kind of palate cleanser before the NBA season starts. And I just, I talked myself out of him really quickly after starting with him as being a top five or top six guy coming into the season. The defense is a real, real issue. And I still don't know where to place him as a result of this, 
because there's so much offensive firepower and uniqueness that he brings to the table. But man, it, it, it's who does he guard? How does he get better on that end? Because it's lateral quickness, it's strength, it's desire for physicality. He kind of bails out and swings and fouls and anyone gets a step on him. Just a lot of habits that I don't love and I don't know how to fix. Yeah, that and that to me is the frustrating part. And it it seems like so much of it is by choice with him that it's frustrating too because you, you see him on the offensive end. And you see the way he celebrates and fires up his teammates. And there's this real sort of competitive fire to yeah. him on that side of the court. And then on defense, he needs to guard somebody. And he's like, ah, oh, can we just like go over there and I can have the ball? Like, it just seems like he has such a little interest uh, in being on that side of the court that, yeah, to your point, I, I just don't, I, it's, it's the same questions we have with Jang and with Jovich, it, it seems like, I worry a little bit more because I think he's, he might be a little more transition oriented. Yeah. And right. if you're going to grab and go, you've got to grab it first. And I just worry. I, and I know everyone always says rebounding translates. I just have a hard time seeing him like getting in, mixing it up and pulling down those rebounds against NBA bodies. In the, in the playoffs when it's physical and guys are getting in, you'd want to get every rebound. Yeah. I, I think that that's a little bit more of a challenge and look there, there have been really good, players who struggle on defense before right like James Harden's and even yeah. Doncic to a, a certain level he's gotten a lot better early in his career mm -hmm. Luka was pretty bad on the defensive end they are on a completely different level of self-creation that I don't know if Jovich can really get to right he mm -hmm. is good in the combination of skills that he has at his size he's not a get the ball to him one-on-one -on -one and he's going to create every single time like he can hit a step back but he's probably only hitting one out of every three and he's not getting to the rim far frequently enough to say, okay, if someone lunges at him on that step back, he's got the hesitation to get around him. Right. He's a very gifted mm -hmm. passer, but he needs, like you said, he needs that transition and that momentum in order to get him to be more of a threat at the rim. And that's, yeah, that is sort of the big kind of concern hinge with the offense is just, can he command attention as a driver in any way, whether it's out of the pick and roll attacking closeouts um, or just via footwork off the bounce? I think in isolation, I, I just don't see it uh, for him. I just don't think he's fast enough, quick enough, strong enough. Um, but out of the pick and roll, is he going to be really willing to go into the paint? Because he's not a good finisher in the Adriatic League. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of good size in that league, but there's not a ton of strength. It's a league that skews a little bit younger, depending on the team. Yep. Um, and if he's not going to be a real threat to finish and put pressure on the rim, that's going to weaken his ability as a passer. Those right. passing lanes aren't going to open up. The defense isn't going to get rotating. Those reads aren't going to be there. So he really needs to get there. He really needs to have that leverage and be that threat when he's driving to make the defense move to create those advantages. And I am a little leery of him being there right now. I think I'm pretty on board with you. And again, it, it all comes down to where do we slot these guys? Where do you value what they bring to the mm -hmm. table versus what they don't have or are unlikely to acquire? And both Jang and Jovich are pretty fascinating cases for that, which can we just fast forward to late June so we can get kind of definitive <laughs> these right now? Like I love mm -hmm. the scouting process and going through it, but 
I am going to be impatient very soon and just say, I want to know what to do with these guys. Like I can't figure it out on my own. And it's, and it's always situation dependent too, which is the part yeah. that's so frustrating about this. And it, and it always stinks to you when there's a guy that you like, and they end up in a situation that's so good or a guy that you were like, I'm not sure what to do with this guy. And they, just like, like Josh Primo last year for me was like, oh, it's like, I, you know, I, I kind of like Josh Primo. I'm afraid to kind of rocket him up my board. And then he ends up in the Spurs and it's like, oh, that's a great fit. Like, this is just going to be so good for him. And, and it really can kind of change your perception of, of a player. And Scotty Barnes is another one mm-hmm. where it's just going to a great coaching staff, a great developmental organization. And you know, he's just going to fit like a glove and get everything he needs there. This, this is the hard part where we are just kind of in limbo and waiting it out and, and waiting on Intel too. Cause you never know what's going to come out about, Hey, this guy's a real serious worker. This guy, you know, is a joy to have in the gym. He's never leaving the gym. He wants to start gaining weight. You never know what's going to come out and, and that can affect everything too. I, I, I cannot wait for the, this guy has really improved his jump shot and has been in the gym with Mike Miller for 12 straight month, like all this stuff. Yeah. 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 Working out with Mike Miller, gaining 15 pounds of muscle, all of our favorite things that happen this this time of year. It's almost that time of year. It's almost Mm -hmm. there. Uh, There's one other international guy that I think receives a decent amount of first round interest. I I know Rafael Barlow from NBA Draft Junkies, good friend of mine, has him as a first round guy and has really liked him a lot this year. It's Ismael Kamagate playing for Mm -hmm. Paris. What are your thoughts on uh, on Kamagate as Kind of a, you know, a more traditional big man in a lot of senses, but also somebody that has quite the athletic package to offer at his size. Yeah, I think I'm I'm higher on him than most. Uh, you know, I'm also a big fan of Raphael, and I think we're kind of I'm I'm closer to where he is than where most people are on Kamagate. Um, I really like his feet a lot. Like that dude just moves so well. Um on defense, uh, there were some real kind of concerns I had earlier in the year with him as far as pick and roll coverage. He had a really bad habit of just sort of like losing his man the longer the pick and roll progressed. Uh, his man could kind of float away from him to a little bit, go to the opposite side dunker spot, get an open look. He's really shored that up. Um, his just general attentiveness on that side of the ball is, is tremendous. Um, I'm also a fan of how well he moves on offense. Again, a lot of that to do with his feet in terms of just rolling to the basket and slipping screens. I don't know that there's a quicker big man in this class in terms of just I'm screening. Now I'm moving. Uh, He really, really gets to the rim quickly. And that's that's a great trait to have. Uh, His passing has come a long way. His feel is just improving by the day he's a late bloomer and i'm really comfortable betting on guys that are late bloomers a lot of people point out oh, he's you know 21 already some guys it, it just takes them a little bit longer and and they're you know not every developmental path is the same um the last thing i really want to point out with him is that if you look at his numbers compared to rudy gobert's at the same age in the french league they are eerily similar i don't think his ceiling's the same he's not as long as gobert um i don't think his technique is as good as gobert uh, the one thing that irks me with Kamagate is he's still very upright at times when he guards on the perimeter. I'd like him to sit down in a stance a little bit more because uh, if he just gets switched onto a guard, it's fine. But in a pick and roll, he doesn't really sit down the same way and and he can, you know, allow easier looks. But can, I think he's going to produce. Can we dispel one fallacy out there right now, which is that Rudy Gobert is not a good switchable defender? It's like, he, It's a shame that, yeah. He is. And and people think about him as this just drop back, not want to switch on the perimeter. Like, no, part of the reason they don't want to switch Rudy Gobert 
is because if he's the, the Jazz entire roster, one through four, is built with sieves on the defensive end on the perimeter. Mm-hmm. So they need Rudy at the rim to clean up their mess. That's the only way they can play and outscore teams. But guess what? If you switch Rudy onto the perimeter, guess where he's not? Yeah. Ask it to protect the sieves everywhere else. Like it's it's not mm-hmm. that Rudy can't do it. It's that the roster is constructed in a way that doesn't allow him to do that. And and look, Kamagate has a long way to go. Switch oh, yeah. guys, and I don't know why <laughs> you bringing up the comparison between them and talking like that triggered mm-hmm. me in a way. Like Rudy, no, Gobert, it's a real problem. Got to defend Ruby, Rudy, because I'm I'm wearing a Sixers sweatshirt, so I love jazz slander. Like it's so funny <laughs> to me because uh, their their fans get very upset about it, and they should. It's it's a lot of it's so unwarranted. But yeah, like the highlights that you'll see from jazz games of just the you know, barn door defense and just letting guys get to the rim that some of those perimeter players would do on that team. There's no way any of those guys are protecting the rim. It compares out on the perimeter, not a chance. So it's not his fault at all. He's exceptionally mobile for a guy his size. Um, I, I think the Kamigate comparison is an interesting one in, in mm-hmm. some of those ways. Um, but more than anything, it's about, and I'm going to ask you a philosophical question now, Maxwell. Mm-hmm. We're talking a lot about late bloomers or guys who are figuring it out as the season goes on, right? That's a lot of the trend that we're seeing with a guy like Jang, a guy like Jaden Hardy, who I brought up earlier, Mm -hmm. or a guy like Kamigate right now. How do you value that trajectory? Is this something that you say, hey, he's figured it out during the season, and now let's only look at the final eight to ten games because – this is going to be more of who he is in the NBA. Is it trying to figure out how much more there is to add? As I like to say, how much bloom is still left on the rose mm-hmm. and in terms of development, or is it more of a, Hey, he just made a jump up to this plateau. He's probably going to stay there for a while before he makes another type of jump. Like I always struggle with knowing how to describe a player's in season growth mm-hmm. as more than just, Hey, it's a positive. He's gotten better but how much is left? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. Um, I think it depends on the player, on their physical tools, and on what improved specifically. Um, so with a guy like Jaden Hardy, to me, I think that was largely just mental and basketball feel on the court for him. Um, like watching some of the early night games, it seemed like he just could not get separation. And that's all anyone would talk about is he can't, he can't separate. He can't separate, can't get separation on the perimeter. Not going to start, not going to be in the NBA. He's bad. And people were just going wild. And then if you watch him later on the season, he figured out so many ways to just get a little bit more distance, get off his shots a little bit cleaner. If he'd played the same way, but his shots were going in at a higher percentage, I wouldn't be as interested in Jaden Hardy as I am. I, I have him as a lottery guy because he figured out here's the ways I'm going to create separation to make my looks easier so I can make them. Uh, so for, for me, I, I kind of view it in that sense. With Kamigate, I, I think what I like about him is that he has such good physical tools and he has rapidly improving feel. So I'm willing to bet that as he kind of feel, you know continues to develop, Things like a jump shot, I'm willing to buy into because he's very coordinated. He's not a guy I, I, you know, I'd want taking a three-pointer right now, but just based on his coordination, his movement skills, I could see him becoming a guy who takes a couple, you know, you know, one or two a game here or there. Um, so with him, it, it, it's it's along those lines. Um, so I I tend to base it on 
what is it that improved? And then, yeah, sort of physically, like how much is there to untap beyond what they're already doing? Like, sure. um, sure. cause yeah, if it's just shots falling or it's, you know, something minor like that, I'm, I'm not as interested. Yep. Yeah. And, and again, translatability of what you've added, right? Party yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A really good shot maker. And now he's added space creation is okay. That's going to translate, right? Mm -hmm. Like a guy who just figures out how to play off two feet a little bit more and be more under control in the lane as the season goes on. Not quite as translatable because you need to be a little bit more one foot jumpy and bouncy in traffic in order to make it in the NBA. So again, mm -hmm. the, the type of translatability of the skill does matter. Um, and, and that's the big for Kamigachi too, just in terms of decision-making with the ball too, is another thing. Like there was a play early in the season. I, I think it was a game against El Portel early in the year. Like he got the ball in the elbow and the defense just kind of sagged off of him. And he took the most just uncomfortable, like one dribble forward and picked up the ball. And it was just very clear that it's like, doesn't know how to call for a handoff. Doesn't know how to orchestrate it. You know, it double teams really flustered him. He's still not the best at passing out of him, but he's figuring it out. And it's those kind of strides where it's like, all right, this is going to really come in handy on an NBA floor that, that gets me more excited. And, and he shows flashes as a short roll passer, which mm -hmm. like well, that's frequent in the NBA because there are so many three point threats with the ball in their hands. Guys like Dane Willard or Steph Curry or whoever, who just suck the defense away from the lane. And therefore the easy one is the pocket pass to the big, who's now got a four on three makes the right decision, but you don't get to practice that at lower levels of basketball against live competition. It's not a functional game rep that you would really get outside of the NBA a lot. Uh, it's a hard thing to learn. And, and again, you've, you develop feel for it as you go through it. I think Kamigate has a little bit of upside as a, as a short roll creator, just from a couple of the glimpses and clips that I've seen, like, yeah, he's got a long way to go in terms of putting the ball on the floor, but he's starting to process and understand what he should do in those situations. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think that again, the short roll passing, it comes back to his feet and how quick he can get to the rim. Whereas if the defense isn't rotating properly, if there's not help, if he gets a step on a guy, he can, he might just get right to the room and finish it depending on where the defense is too. So he's, he's just got so many interesting tools that I think just based on his production in that league, I think he's more ready out of the gate than people project. And I do think there's just real starter upside on top of all of it. Okay. So Kamigate or Walker Kessler. I have Kamigate ahead of Kessler on my board. What about um, Kamigate or Mark Williams? I do have Mark Williams ahead of him. I think Mark Williams' size is just too much. I think from a physical standpoint, they're in a, a very similar place, but Mark Williams is the bigger out of the two. So it's it's Mark Williams. And I just think I think he might be a little bit more ready out of the gate, just in yeah. terms of his his role and things like that. Like I I, I don't know. I think he'll just step in a lot cleaner than Kamigate will. Yeah, fair enough. I think we're we're pretty aligned on that. I'm a big Mark Williams guy, so mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a larger gap between him and Kamigate than Kamigate and, and Kessler right now. Yes, but, I would agree. Um, no, fair enough. So a couple other international guys, Maxwell, to mm -hmm. really hit on before we get out of here. What direction do you want to go? Who do we want to talk about first? Yeah, let's do Spagnolo. Or I'm sorry, let's do uh Prasida. Let's do Gabriel okay. Prasida because he's okay. he's the most fun international player this year for me. Uh <laughs> I agree. This man is a hoot. He is so fun to watch. Uh, he is brimming with confidence at all times. Uh, the, the putback dunk featured in two separate no ceilings columns today. Both myself and Tyler Rucker, great minds, uh, put the same Gabriel Procida putback dunk into our column. Uh, he just is so slithery. 
uh, off the ball in terms of cutting to the basket, going in for rebounds, going in for putbacks, and he is a real shooter. Um, the handle is a little dicey, and if you're going to be a wing in the modern NBA, you got to be able to put it on the floor a little bit, but I'm seeing enough passing flashes to get excited. The defense, again, one of those things where it's not all the way there, but uh, the tools are really good for it. Um, so, I, yeah, where, where are you kind of at with him at this point? So I buy into the athleticism. I think he's mm-hmm. really athletic. Um, yeah. I, I'm really attracted to guys that are athletic and naturals on one end of the floor who are also efficient, right? And he's over 50% from the field, 40% from three. I buy into the shot. Uh, sh- shooting and athleticism, if you're going to be a wing, is important. But uh, again, defense, ball handling, like a couple of things that you just mentioned there those have to shore up in order for him to really approach first round territory for me. I think that he is probably my favorite second round draft and stash guy this year. We're in the early thirties. I'm like, I have, I have a lot of confidence in taking him, letting him develop overseas for another year or two. And then saying, Hey, if he's improved in some of those ball skill areas and he's more filled out, more competitive, he can really help us. Yeah. Yeah. The upside is, is very exciting, but it is tough when those kind of basic pieces aren't there because those are the things that you can just see maybe being the things that prevent him from having an effective NBA career. And I want to put him in the first round so bad, but you just get into that territory and there's so many other wings that I at least know can hang can, you know, if they need to put it on the floor, I'm not completely worried about it. A, a guy like a Christian Brown, uh, you know, Christian Brown needs to put the ball on the floor for a couple of dribbles. That's okay. If he's, you know, guarding out on the perimeter, I'm fine with that. Or with Prasida, it's like, you know, I'm kind of cu- tugging my collar a little bit if I have him in those same situations right now. And he is young and he's got plenty of time to figure it out. But yeah, those are, are kind of the things that are just holding me back. But he's a guy that I'm rooting for just because he's so exciting. Yeah, there are a lot of wings in this draft class too uh, mm-hmm. that are draftable, right? And it, yeah. it ends up being a point where it's kind of choose your flavor, right? Mm-hmm. Who is it that you want to really go with? Is it more of a shooting guy in the second round? Is it more of a do-it-all guy? It's more of an athlete. Like you can really mix and match. Where I was, I I think we're going to get to a point where there's both Harrison Ingram's and Julian Champagny's and uh, Josh Minox that are all on the board at the same time. It's like which type of player do you really want at that wing spot? And and Mm -hmm. with Placida, he strikes me more as a combination of a lot of those things because he's athletic, because he shoots it. He's also probably one of the farthest away from making an impact. So yeah, uh, yeah, I I think that patience is, you know, you draft him, you stash him, you let him develop. I, I always struggle to know when those guys get drafted, right? Like there's, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of circumstances where they go later parts of the first round and team just says, you know what, I'm not spending a pick this year, but there's a guy who's upside. We really like, let's take him to twenties. There's a lot of circumstances where it's priority guy to get early in the thirties because you know, you want to draft and stash him and not let anyone else get him. And then other years, it just slips all the way to the second half of the second round. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't know guy how that like a like Vrenz Blindberg last year, where it was the guy who like popped up and everybody was super excited. And it's like, Oh, he might go or might go early thirties, might go forties. He's so interesting. You know, he can make all these cool passes. The shot looks pretty good, even though the percentages aren't great. And then just 
didn't end up getting taken. It's, it's a crapshoot and it's, it's really tricky for a lot of guys in those spots. And that's why I'm kind of worried for some of the college guys this year, just because there are so many players that it's just a, what flavor do you like kind of thing that yeah, on the wrong night, like some guys might just really fall. So it's, it's, it's pretty precarious in that range this year. And, and friends, he had a, such a unique situation too, right? There was some yeah. stuff like aging and paperwork. I think that he wanted to come over right away to the NBA mm-hmm. or at least be in the United States. And I think some of the value was in being more of a draft and stash guy. Like I, the, mm-hmm. there are circumstances that obviously with Persida and any of these international guys, you have to work out. And it, you know, from our standpoint here, it, it's hard to know all of that, especially in early mm-hmm. April, but at the very least um, he is a name that we have to watch and give a lot of credence to on draft night because he's super, super talented. Absolutely. Right. One other guy uh, internationally, Maxwell, Take us home here. Who's the last guy we want to hit on tonight? Oh, man. Uh, anybody that's jumping out to you? Anybody that you really want to go over is kind of sticking out on your side? You know, we Khalifa talk- Jop is my guy that I, I want to talk about. But Khalifa Jop is uh, perhaps the most unsexy international prospect that, like, <laughs> nobody has any interest in covering, it seems. Uh, yeah. But you watch him play, and it's like, this guy feels like an NBA player. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, we talked about the New Zealand breakers a little bit mm-hmm. in the context yeah. of that situation. And and I have a really hard time thinking to myself that this could be the worst team in history in the NBL and have two draft prospects on it. Right. Yeah. And that's where we talk about Usman Jang and then there's Hugo Basson. Yeah. And, and he has a much larger role, like 14 and a half points, 34% from three, like barely a positive assist to turnover ratio. He's mm-hmm. not very athletic, but he's super crafty, very mm-hmm. smart. I think a better passer than a lot of the numbers might indicate. I've heard a lot of people that say, oh, he's got this little like Ginoblian thing to him where he's a combo guard that has, does a little bit of everything. And I don't, like Manu had some burst and some crap to him. Like he was a yeah. really good defender. And that's, that's where I get lost with Basan. I don't really know how to value him right now. I think I have him outside of my top 60. But every time I, I come back to international prospects and, and having conversations with other scouts or, or, you know, folks that I know, he's the one name that continually comes up as, I think you're too low on him. And I wonder if you have a sales pitch to try to convince me otherwise, or if you see it kind of the same way of like, I don't see a Manu type player and I'm concerned about the defense. Yeah. So I am also concerned about the defense. I think everyone should be concerned about the defense. It is a problem. He's, he's one of those guys who has like five steals over the course of the entire season, just anemic steals numbers. And it's the issue is again, it's a motor issue. Like there's just times where it, like the commentary will have to like point it out that he is not trying on defense right now. It's, it's frustrating. Um, Manu's a bit rich for me. Um, our, our cat is named Popovich. So I would like to think I know a little bit about the history of the Spurs and I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to do that to Bassan. I think that's unfair to kind of put the Manu Manu tag on him. I, I do think there is a real chance that he becomes a guy who leads a second unit in the NBA though. Um, his efficiency is again, going to take a hit because he's fortunate to this oversized role on a bad team. Uh, he does get a lot of attention. His passing is very nice. And early on in the year, he, I, I kind of had some frustrations with him because he would try to just force these flashy passes. And it was almost as if he was trying to show off and yeah. it, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But 
now you watch him and it's like, oh no, he's, he's figured it out. And he's doing some really interesting things uh, in terms of how he looks off his passes, hitting the right guy, hitting him in a timely manner. Every pass is snappy. It's direct. It's the right type of pass. Uh, Nothing eats me up inside more than like the slow bounce pass for no reason, or sort of like the looping skip pass. Everything is on time with Basan. Um, I, I do think that there are some real point guard skills that it wouldn't shock me if he could become sort of a Lou Williams style second unit leader who's going to come in, he's going to fill up and score, but he can pass. It's not his main thing, but he can do it. Um, I, I really like his offensive game. Uh, I think there's a strong cap on his ceiling yeah. because the defensive issues, um, but his just his craft around the bucket has gotten a lot better. I think he pressures the rim. Uh, better than an international peer like Matteo Spagnolo, where everything is just a one or two dribble pull-up. Bassan can get to the rim and he's figuring out how to finish a, a lot better as the season has gone on. So I, I do think he should be probably somewhere in like the I, I think I've got him like 42. I want to say somewhere in that range, early 40s. Um, I, I think there's some real nice upside with him, but there is a pretty firm ceiling on him just based on length, athleticism, and defense. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are the hangups for me right now. I think that that's as compelling of a case as I've heard for, you know, letting him run the second unit, be a better passer than what he's shown with the breakers and assist numbers with that team are going to be tough to, to really put a lot of stock in. Um, mm-hmm. But it, yeah, there's, there's a pro player in there. I'm just not sure if it's in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't shock me. Like he's one of those guys, like you put him in that range to, and, and, I don't know. I think, I think people take it the wrong way when you say, Hey, this guy just might not be an NBA player, but there's nothing wrong with being a professional basketball player who makes a lot of money in another country. I promise you there's nothing wrong with that at all. No, Shane Larkin is a European MVP type of player. And and like, Mm -hmm. yeah, he was solid as an NBA player. He wasn't a star by any means, but you can be a superstar in those leagues because the style of the game is a little bit more fitting to who you are. And there again, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But Mm -hmm. uh, Maxwell, a pleasure having you on here. Before we get you out of here, let people know, what do you got going on? Where can we find you on social media? What's in the works for Maxwell Baumbach? For sure. Well, yeah, first off, I I just want to say thank you so much again for having me. Huge fan of everything that you do. So to be here is just honestly a a huge pleasure. I didn't think, you know, you're so going, I'm just watching your YouTube videos. I'd be talking to you on a podcast. So super exciting for me to be here. Uh, So make sure you're checking out Adam's work if you're not already. Um, my work is all going to be at no ceilings going forward. So no ceilings, NBA.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Baum boards. It's B A U M boards, like boards, like you're getting a rebound, a board or your draft board, all that. Um, upcoming work. I'm working on a, a Josh Minot feature for next week, which has been interesting. Just a, another real kind of mystery man at the draft. So that's kind of the niche that I'm falling into for whatever reason right now, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. So uh, make sure you're subscribed to no ceilings, follow me on Twitter, follow no ceilings NBA on Twitter. You'll, you'll get everything I do if you're in those places. Yeah, and, and a lot of great work and read the piece on Usman Jang. If you haven't already fantastic work that Maxwell put together the whole team over at No Ceilings is doing a fantastic job, putting me to shame with how much they put out there. Uh, but more than anything, thank you all for listening, for tuning in here to the Boxing One podcast. And this is your reminder to always hashtag ban the take foul.